Hello, I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. You're listening to episode 81 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. We're a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. We're recording this on 25th of February 2020 here in Dragon Hall. Hello to everyone in Goose Creek, South Carolina. I was, I was about to ask where Goose Creek is. I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's the best place to raise a family in all of South Carolina. Is it really? Yeah, we've Have we got a, listeners there? Yeah, in the last week we've had quite a few listeners from there, so... Hello. Lovely, welcome. So last week the full programme for the Norfolk and Norwich Festival was announced. Yes, so our City of Literature programme that we developed in partnership with Norfolk and Norwich Festival went live on Friday morning at 10am. The City of Literature strand of Norfolk and Norwich Festival this year runs from the 18th until the 24th of May. We're going to be talking about the festival a lot over the coming months, but are there a couple of events that people should check out straight away? Yes, absolutely. So I think we've got about 25 events, something like that, coming up at the festival this year, over 40 artists taking part. Uh, And one of the key themes of this year's festival is art in a time of emergency. So we're looking at art as a powerful force for change, for resistance and for repair. One of uh, the most exciting things I think that we've got coming up is going to be taking place all week between the 18th and the 24th of May. It's called A Delicate Sight which is an installation, it's a creative interactive experience that's been developed by an artist called Sam Winston. So this event includes a film, an exhibition and a guided activity. Um, And the key selling point for this for me is that we're going to be erecting a dark room in the Great Hall upstairs in Dragon Hall that you can enter um, and sit in complete darkness. So have your sight taken away um, for a certain period of time um, and you'll have the chance to create some art, whether that's drawing or writing um, in the darkness. And then you can come out afterwards and we'll have a discussion about it. So there have been lots of leading UK writers such as Bernadine Ivaristo and Max Porter who have taken part in this installation already. You get a chance to see their work, you get to see what Sam the artist himself got up to when he did his own darkness residency. I think he stayed in the dark for like a week, non-stop, day and night. But it's a chance to take away one of your key senses and see how that affects you and the creation of art. Sounds quite intense. I think it's supposed to be, um, they they did this before actually at South Bank, I think it was, um, and it went down very well. Participants had a really interesting, very unique experience. Um, yeah, it's I the think, kind of thing that everyone's going to react to slightly differently, I imagine. Yeah, I think so, absolutely. And Norfolk and Norwich Festival has always been known for its very unique experiential events, so I think this fits in quite well. And it's literature done a bit differently. The other event that I'm going to give a plug to happens on Saturday the 25th of May. So it's during our City of Literature weekend, our festival weekend, which takes place uh, partly in the festival gardens in the Adnam Spiegel tent during the day and also at Dragon Hall in the evenings over the weekend. At 2pm on the Saturday, we've got our annual Harriet Martineau lecture. Um... I'm sure listeners have heard Sarah Perry's lecture from last year, which was on the Essex Girls, which was fantastic. Um, So every year we celebrate the legacy of Harriet Martineau, who was a remarkable world-changing woman um, by inviting a globally renowned radical speaker to respond to her life and work. So this year we were extremely excited to welcome Ella P. Wakatama. She is a literary critic and editor-at-large for Canongate Fiction. I can't tell you exactly what Ella will be speaking about at the moment. It's all kind of under wraps and under development, but I have heard some threads and I think it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, so every year it's entirely different, depends on who you're getting. 
and it's always fascinating and exciting. Uh, if you want to get a kind of flavour for what mm. the lecture can be, then yeah, do check out episode 49 of the podcast, which is where you'll find last year's lecture from Sarah Perry. Tickets for the entire City of Literature programme go on sale this Thursday, and you can find them at our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And if you want to find out more about the festival in general and all the other events they're doing, you can find them at nnfestival.org.uk. So what have we got on the podcast today, Steph? Our special guest this week, Simon, is Ashley hickson Lovance, who is in conversation with our programme officer, Flo Reynolds. Ashley has recently published a book called The 392, and I believe this is his debut novel. So he's speaking to Flo about the process of becoming a writer. Yeah, and the struggles of trying to find the time to write, especially before you publish your first novel, where you're probably trying to squeeze it in around whatever your day job is and other activities. And Ashley has a background as a teacher. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, his route from that into being a writer, which is now something he can dedicate more time to and kind of how he went from A to B. Lovely. Mm -hmm. Let's hand over to Ashley and Florence. So Ashley Hickson Lovins, thank you so much for joining us on thank you for the having National Centre <laughs> Podcast. Um, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And I wonder if before we come on to talk a little bit about your novel 392 and what you're working on now and what might be coming up next for you, um, whether you could talk to us a little bit about where your um, life as a writer began and, and how you've, you've got here. Um, today. Yeah, it's really strange because it does take a while to see yourself as a writer. Like even when you have published works out and even when you do events, it doesn't really sink in. Um, I feel like I'm getting there, but I feel uh, imposter syndrome is uh, prevalent, shall we say. Um, but I've always loved writing. Um, so during my teens, I wrote a lot of poetry. I love poetry because it was very terse, it's very short. And it's quite accessible because of its length, mainly. And I decided to sort of combine my two passions at the time, which was writing and writing poetry with um, London transport and buses. So I wrote a collection of what I call 50 bus sonnets. And they were sonnets. I love sonnets. I love the form because it's very strict and the rules. And it's 14 lines. It was very short. And I wrote a collection of 50 bus sonnets um, and all through my teens and into my sixth form years and, and a little bit into my university years. And I decided that this wasn't enough. I wanted to take it further. I wanted to expand on what I'd written. Um, and then sort of the sort of sproutings of the 392 began from there. But it started from poetry. And I think there's, there's a real sort of um, a real conducive relationship with poetry and writing prose. It's a sort of it's, it's the close analysis of, of each line. It's the, the use of punctuation sparingly. It, it's, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I, I sort of went through that sort of um, sort of progression, so to speak, mm. because I think there's a real craft in the idea of, of sort of starting small and then going bigger. And I've seen a lot of fantastic poets write really good longer pieces, Kate Tempest, Dean Atter, yeah. um, Ocean Vong. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's where I hope to aspire to, that sort of similar... Yeah. Some vein. Fantastic. And that's that's so interesting because as you say, as you were writing this poetry collection and starting to move into mm. a longer novel, well, what would become a novel, you were going through school and sixth form and university. And I think I'm right in saying you had a career as a teacher for a bit. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Um, would you mind saying a little bit about how you were 
balancing the writing with study and and work because I think so many writers <laughs> these days are having to juggle more and mm. more um, ways to support what they really want to be doing, which is the I know. writing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how how did you make that work? Yeah, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Um, there was always a writer in me. I think, as I said, from writing poetry as a teenager, there was always a writer in me. But I also really wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to to, to be an, an impactful presence to, to young people and to teenagers in my area. Growing up in a sort of disadvantaged area of East London, I really wanted to help, in particular, young black boys. So yeah. I really wanted to be a teacher in that respect. But every time I was on my way to work or going to work or in work teaching PE paragraphs or GCSE texts, which perhaps weren't the most engaging. I really wanted to, to write and, and I would find any fleeting moment during my break time or lunchtime to just write a few lines, a few observations from the classrooms. Uh, in fact, you know, a lot of what is in the 392 is um, what I've observed in the classroom. So listening to what teenagers say and how teenagers see the world made it into there. But it was tough. I mean, I, I would come home tired um, after sort of a six period day in marking books and planning lessons, etc. And uh, try and squeeze in an hour or two of writing because I really was desperate to get this novel finished. Mm. And it's been really interesting because doing the PhD at the moment, I, I have a lot more free time. Mm. And I'm trying to compare the process. Is my writing better because I have this free time? Or is it, or is it better because I had such a sparing and fleeting sort of period after after work when I was writing the 392. Uh, I don't have any conclusive answers to that, but it's, I found that sort of dynamic really interesting. Um, and yeah, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. But I think the best thing to do was just observe the world around me. And a lot of that made it into the 392, sort of the observations of getting the bus to work, the observations of witnessing these teenagers and in the sort of crux of Brexit, in the crux of this um, sort of political landscape that we were existing in. Yeah, so even, I mean, and teaching as well with all of that marking and, I mean, working outside of working hours, still finding time to write, but yeah. the day job itself is is research, I guess. Yes, I suppose, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and just absolutely just seeing the world around you, writing down any little snippets you can um, and just adding it to your, your big masterpiece when and where necessary. And can I ask how you made that switch from you know, writing around your day job and as you say now, PhD, that, that focus time to, to write and give yourself, I don't know, I guess breathing space and, and just dedicated writing time. What what made you feel like you needed to make that that switch? Um so yeah, so as part of my PhD I have to write a novel essentially. So the novel makes up eighty percent of my entire thesis. Yeah. Um and this idea for the novel, the PhD novel, has existed in my it existed in me for a very long time. It's about a footballing hero of mine. I'm sort of fictionalizing his life story. He is a um, a living um, football referee, so he's he's um, quite notorious in the football scene. And um, I got permission to 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 write his story. I emailed him um, just over a year ago, and he was like, "Yeah, this sounds great." Um, and so I've been interviewing him and regularly and fictionalizing his life events and uh yeah it's been just been fantastic because he is a hero of mine so it is really nice to actually um sort of be him but and 
about two years ago, I um, had this idea and I had an MA in creative writing and I managed to get a good grade out of it, which I wasn't expecting, but I managed to get a good grade out of it. And I was like, maybe I can combine these two things. Uh, so I sent out a um, what is called a research proposal. It's about sort of a six or seven page document about what you want to do at PhD level at creative writing, creative writing. Um, and this was about the footballing hero of mine. And I sent it out to maybe about 50 football fan academics around the country. Yeah. Um, so I did a bit of research, looked on their pages, see if they love football mm-hmm. fans. And Birmingham, Lincoln, Newcastle, literally everywhere in the country. And I got a response from about four or five mm-hmm. who said they really liked the project, really interested. They have a few names that they could sort of uh, put me to and suggested... And I was very close to going to University of Lincoln. Um, the supervisor there was very was very lovely. He looked at my research proposal, liked what I wanted to write. But then, very late in the game, uh, UEA came, and it was Alison Donnell, who's head of head of school at UEA um, of literature, drama, and creative writing. And she said, "This sounds like a fantastic project, and I've got a perfect supervisor for you, as well as I, I will help you with the critical side." It was an opportunity that I couldn't sort of. Like let go to be honest it was UEA mm. renowned for its uh, creative writing courses so many names so many fantastic literary names that I absolutely adore and I couldn't I just had to take this opportunity and um, I decided to hand in my resignation as a teacher before it had even been confirmed that I got a place oh, officially fantastic. so it was a bit of a risk but it worked yeah. out it worked out a risk but I guess you just when you know that you've got to go and do it absolutely you've got to commit yes, <laughs> yes yeah mm. fantastic oh I uh, I think maybe this is a really good time to ask you a little bit about the 392, which, as you say, you kind of wrote in stolen moments almost. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. And could you, for those of our listeners who haven't read it yet, could you summarise the book and, and your approach to, to taking on such an interesting story? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's pretty crazy, yeah. Um, so the three nine two is a it's a relatively short novel. Um, it's about one hundred and eighty nine pages of the hardback, and it takes place almost entirely on a single decker London bus, which is travelling from uh, Hackney in East London to Islington in sort of lower North London, and it's told from different passengers' perspectives as a suspected terrorist gets on so very early on uh, sort of terrorist archetypally terrorist figure gets on and sort of loiters at the front of this bus and it's about how different passengers from different walks of life see this sort of othered figure um, and how they approach it so some are scared some don't even acknowledge him um, some want to take action um, and it's about sort of a sort of critique of society or the society that I was living in um, when I lived in London, essentially what I was aiming for in writing the 392 is about hearing from voices that you don't usually hear from in literary fiction. You hear from those that homeless guy who's speaking to himself at the front of the bus. You hear from those annoying schoolgirls at the back of the bus playing music. And it was sort of about what are their stories? What are they? What lives are they living? What What is their backstory? And that was my main aim in writing the 392. I thought to myself when I'm writing, when I'm on a bus, who are these sort of typical personnel that you see on a bus and try to give them a bit of life try to give them sort of yeah. backstory yeah and that's so interesting um well I've I've had to read it quite quickly because I knew I was going to talk to you yes, and yeah. I wanted to to have an overview and I'm going to go back and savor <laughs> it on the second read 
but as you say, it's kind of tapping into bigger things that are happening in our society, the ways that people see each other and Mm. things we assume about each other. Did you feel in writing the book that you had a, a message, as it were? Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, I didn't overtly sort of write the 392 as... I have this particular political agenda that I'm trying to push. For me, it was how do I make the lives of um, people living in a metropolis like London um, as realistic as possible? I know realistic is very subjective. Like, what does that mean? What what is authenticity, etc.? But Mm. I wanted it to be, for me, what is being presented in 2018, 2019 existence. And with that comes, unfortunately, the uh, uncertainty with Brexit, um, the... Um, ever-changing um, political climate, the the rise of knife crime, a perceived lack of funding in education. That was, for me, what was happening. And I didn't want to make an argument about it. And I had no specific political agenda that I was trying to put across. But for me, that was just existing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that manifests itself sometimes subtly, sometimes overtly, through the different characters' um, sort of um, actions in the book. But I, I don't think I went about it Deliberately. For me, I was just observing and I love people watching. It's my favourite thing to do. And I think that is my number one tip for any... I don't, I don't, like, to, don't like to use the word budding or aspiring writer. If you write, you're a writer to me. But any sort of person who wants to pen something longer, just go outside and, and people watch. And there are stories just literally outside your door. Um, and that, that was what I was doing. I was just observing what I saw around me. And um, unfortunately... Uh, negatively sometimes that did manifest itself through knife crime and petty crime and moped crime which is mentioned quite a lot in the 392. So the book was published a little bit earlier this year in the summer and the reception um, has just been fantastic I mean it's been optioned now to travel into different media um, and everything how have you found the reception has it kind of impacted on your what you're writing at the moment? That's a, yeah, it's a really good question, a question I've not been asked before, actually. Um, so, yeah, so, it's, so it's, it's more or less six months since the book has been released. And um, it's a question that I think about often. Am I happy with how it's been received? Am I happy with the numbers? I don't, I don't tend to query the numbers very much because I just sort of let it happen, you know. Yeah. Um, and generally, yes, I really am. Um, it's been, so I, I was published by Own It, who are a very independent um, publishers based in East London, um, very similar to sort of like Galley Beggar Press here. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a couple. We love um, our yeah, exactly. <laughs> indies are great, and it's a publishing house that I wanted to be published by. You know, I did. I could have waited longer when it was out for out for submission. My manuscript was out for submission, and I didn't want to wait any longer. I wanted it to be own it with this particular book. It felt right. It felt like the setting was right. It felt like the time was right. Um, because I did have some interest from a bigger publishing house who perhaps wanted to do a bit more work with it. And it would have been published probably in uh, 2020 or 2021, which would have been great, but I felt like the themes were more current and needed to be published in 2019. Um, And also, I love working with um, Crystal uh, Mahi Morgan from Own It. Um, So it's it's worked out perfectly. Um, And as I said, I don't know too much about the numbers or sales or anything. I'm very happy with how it's gone. Um, For me, it's just so great to have a story that existed um, in my head and then on my phone and then now in bookshops. I feel really privileged um, and um, incredibly lucky to be working alongside such driven individuals like Crystal and Jason from Own It!, um, and yeah, the options was the options was fantastic. I mean, it's still a long process, and it will still take 
some tweaking of the script when it comes etc but um yeah it's really exciting and I'm just really happy and what I love about more than anything is how even though it's a London set novel yeah I've had people from Scotland um tweet me and say they read it and it's fantastic so you know I really want I want the themes that are universal to be sort of um revealed across across nationwide essentially because um that's what I was aiming for yeah fantastic and it's so nice I'm just thinking uh you know, there are so many indie presses out there who yes. are absolutely punching above their perceived weight, mm. and you know they are literary heavyweights. And yeah, absolutely. You know, great to see you know a book like yours published by an indie that you know there's that publisher writer relationship. Yeah, definitely. It's, so, it's such a. I mean, the barrier between the writer and publisher can be huge. I, I mean, I'm speaking as an outsider here, but it, the, with my experience, um, it's just been so close. And I feel like I know what's going on. I know events being planned and books being so... And yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah. it's, it's really Fantastic. reassuring. Yeah. Um, and submitting to Own It and finding out about the press, was that happening through an agent for you? Or had you already kind of researched presses yourself and knew where the book might sit. Uh... Yeah, it's really funny. Um, so my publisher own it. Um, they don't mind receiving, I think it's called unsolicited uh, manuscripts. So mm-hmm. if you even if you don't have an agent, um, they're quite happy to receive your your, your manuscript, um, which I think is, is quite reassuring, isn't it? Like, because yeah. it always feels like there are many steps to being published and getting an agent is one of them. But I suppose with um, a stance like that, it isn't necessarily the case. But... Um, yeah, I actually had an agent anyway. Um, mm. I did an MA in creative writing part time while I was a teacher in London, City University of London, and I am um, a bit very similar to UEA. When you finish the MA, they publish your first few chapters into an anthology, yeah. and they they did that at City University, and that was sent off to a few agents. And I remember one afternoon I was teaching. I did something naughty. I checked my phone while they were working. I received about three or four emails from um, potential agents who liked the first few chapters. Um, and I got really excited. I remember I couldn't say anything to the kids at the time, but I got really excited. I was like, yeah. And they were like, so why are you so hyper? And I was like, oh, no, I'm just hyper. Um, and yeah, I, I managed to um, acquire uh, Philippa Sitters, who is the most fantastic agent, um, and helped me through the process of getting the contract signed with Own It. Um, and also we'll be working quite closely with um, the second novel that I'm writing, of course. So. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's it's so fascinating to hear that that agent relationship is often so important. Mm, and as yeah. you say, it's it's fantastic that there are indie presses out there who will take take risks on, on absolutely who yeah. aren't yet agented. It's so important to have those working relationships. I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about the PhD and as as you say the, the MA and studying now at UEA whether. Being a, a published writer now and working on your second novel as part of a PhD, could you talk a little bit about writing across these different forms? Do you have a different process at all or does it somehow uh, sit differently with you at all? It's been an interesting um, sort of progression from uh, writing the 392 in which it was, you know, I, I, mo- I mostly wrote it on my on my way to work, as I said, on my phone and um, it having that sort of <laughs> ungainly sort of quality to it. Whereas here it's, this is my focus. I wake up 
with the plan of writing my second novel. I get essentially um, my stipend paid to write this second novel as part of the PhD. So it's very, very different. Um, also, the style of the writing is very different. I mean, so novel one is set almost entirely um, in, in modern day London. Novel two is half of it is set in 1970s Sheffield, a city that I've only ever been to once. Oh, wow. Um, and the second half is set all over it's very different it's written in a different person so it stylistically is very different but I have the support of well my fantastic um, primary supervisor so my main creative supervisor is Andrew Cohen who is the most unbelievable human (laughs) there is Um, he does line edits particular stringent line edits of my work which I love because as I said being a a former poet, I suppose. Um, I'm very particular about how the words sit on every line. Yeah. Uh, so it's really fantastic to have his um, his input on this tricky second novel. It's really interesting because I have three years to write this novel, more or less. Um, and in that first year, I probably did about 7,000 words in the whole of a year. And that's quite a pitiful amount. And then since then, so we're now sort of like approaching halfway of second year, I've you know, I've reached about a third of the novel. So I <laughs> had a good second year. I was really worried at the end of the first year. I like, I've not written anything. I don't know what I'm going to write. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I had a, I had a, a big scare. Um, but yes, yeah, I've, I've actually like sped on and uh, feeling a lot more confident about it than I once was. Fantastic. I guess there's all that kind of research and, as you say, finding the voice finding yeah. like easing into it. Absolutely. Style. I change person, which I know is a big thing. Like I change from first person. And I was really struggling with that for a long while. And I changed it to second person, which is very rare. Like, you don't really find that much yeah. in literary fiction. But um, and now it just worked. There was a moment when it clicked and I was like, this is much better. Yeah. I, I feel comfortable writing this now. In first person, I was really struggling to get the words out. Mm. It just didn't feel right. I didn't feel like I was adopting the persona of the character that I wanted to create. Um, so I changed it to second person. Oh, yeah. Great. So it sounds like, like you're taking a few risks with this new book and trying some new things. Yeah. The reason why I chose that second person is because I just didn't feel accomplished enough to be to write as him in first person. So there is a nice sort of closeness but detachment of the second person, which mm-hmm. I've now adopted yeah. um, and seems to be working. Someone's real life yes. becoming fiction. Yes. Yeah. I think I'm, there's a particular, like, I'm all about authenticity or realism whatever you want to call it mm. but um yeah and, e- and even though this is something i've written this down i always have five or six aims that i write down before i write even with the 392 um and and with the second novel um five or six aims that i want to achieve by the end of writing it and one of the aims is it is a football novel that appeals to non-football fans yeah. so even though this is about a, a figure who was involved in football i want it to be more about a retelling of an underdog, a retelling of a person who came from a disadvantaged background and made it to the top of his profession um, and, and had to deal with the abuse that he did. So um, I wanted to appeal to everybody, not just football fans. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, no, I just wanted to sort of end with um, sort of like a positive note of anybody who, who is who's working on a project or sort of stuck on a project, just keep going. And I mean, I had the... Uh, I didn't think I was going to finish the 392 working as a teacher and um, it's worked out really, really well. So just stick at it, set yourself realistic targets and um, do lots of people watching and uh, I wish you all the best. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Ashley Hickson-Lovers. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening and thanks to Ashley and Flo. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us at all the usual places on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre, over on Facebook, or of course via our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Please do remember to rate, review and subscribe. It helps others to find the podcast. And makes us feel good. It does. Yes. Thanks again. Keep writing and we will catch you next week. Mm -hmm.